You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed, our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. We talk all about the latest inflation numbers out of the U.S. and really get into what's been driving the volatility in the longer end of the yield curves in the U.S. and throughout the globe. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schneer, and I'm delighted to be back with our Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Dustin Reed. Dustin, why don't we jump right into it? Uh, as, uh, as you know, we always uh, schedule these podcasts just after a major uh, release, this time it's U.S. inflation. What's the, the latest set of U.S. inflation and what's your take on it? Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much for having me on the, uh, the podcast. So, yeah, we've had uh, the CPI number of the U.S. here a couple hours ago. And there's some interesting things in, in the data, for sure. I mean, clearly the market, just to take a half step back, has been looking at and expecting and receiving uh, slower inflation prints, right, on the annual basis, and right. uh, and the monthly has generally come down. And this morning was, at least from a headline perspective, was was also that uh, the month over month print was 0.4 versus expectations of 0.3, and the core number was in line with expectations, also at 0.3. Uh, the 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 wages side was a little bit frothy at, at 0.5. So you saw the annual number for core uh, in line with expected, but headline uh, was a little bit was a little bit higher than than where the market was. Underneath kind of the headline stuff, I would say that uh, the details are maybe a bit frothier than what the headline would suggest. Hmm. Nothing uh, earth shattering, but particularly the the shelter component, which we've talked about a lot on these podcasts over the last year or two, um, which obviously has a very very high weighting. Uh, for overall CPI, more more than thirty percent, around thirty two percent. The shelter component was quite was quite strong, up uh, up at point six on the month. Uh, and when you look at kind of a super core, uh, you know, which you know you and I have talked about a couple of times, but the super core when you x out kind of rent and food and uh, and energy, uh, which mm-hmm. again I don't I don't know how you you know most people consume all those three things, but when you when you when you x out those things. Uh, the super core measure, so to speak, was at 0.6 as well, and that's um, that's quite a bit higher than the than the three month moving average over the last three months, uh, previous three months, I should say, annualized average. So there's some underlying frothy stuff, I think, kind of particularly on the housing side, whether you look at OER, owners equivalent rent, which is a subcomponent of shelter, or rent itself, which is a subcomponent of shelter, um, that that are frothy, and that's after having come off a bit for the previous month. Obviously, we're speaking here in early mid-ish uh, October to so September data. So back in the the, the August data, uh, that shelter data come off a bit, uh, but now it's coming back up. And I think that just kind of goes to the the view that, and, and our, our long-held view to be, I think, to be fair, is uh, things are going to not necessarily be linear uh, all the way down. And uh, inflation is I think beyond sticky at this point, I think it's structural hmm. and we're set and we're settling in at, at a level, you know, a core inflation uh, of around, you know, and, and headline inflation of around three to 4%. These point threes and point fours on the monthly are becoming more commonplace as opposed to kind of pre pandemic when a, a lot of us, you know, either we're looking at this or, you know, in our careers of point ones or, you know, point twos and a lot of, a lot of zeros on a monthly basis. And now we're right. seeing a lot of point threes and point fours. And so, 
you know, this level up idea that we talked about a couple of years ago in early, maybe late spring or early summer 21. And this idea of leveling up, going from kind of exactly that, from kind of point ones, point twos, even zeros to point threes, point fours. Obviously, for a while, we were getting much higher than that, point right. sixes, sevens, and eights when things were really going, um, you know, pretty pretty strong on the reopening. Uh, but we're settling back down and we're seeing this level up and it's sticky and it's structural. I think a lot of people and a lot of people that are listening to this and investors We'll say, yeah, like you know, my my costs are going up at a good clip every every year, and right. it's probably not it's probably not four percent. It's probably it's probably quite a bit higher, and I think that that's showing in the data. And it's going to be very very tough to unwind that. I think um, for not only the Fed, we're obviously talking about the U.S. in particular with this question, but I think you know North America, you uh, Canada uh, also included, and you know, seeing it in the U.K., seeing it in Europe, and Australia to a point, and. Uh, and some Asian countries. And I, and I think it'll be challenging uh, because I think we are very much in the structural phase and higher inflation has been around for a, a while. And I think it's baked in or built into people's expectations. And uh, that, that is that that can be unwound for sure via a few different channels, but, uh, but it's going to be, it's going to be challenging anyway. So I think that uh, again, the CPI data this morning, it's important, I think for markets, it's not it's not massively uh, changing, but um, right. but there are there are some frothy things in there that will definitely underscore the uh, the the structural uh, tightness in the uh, in the inflation market for a while. That's a uh, good good context. And uh, if we go back to our last podcast, which was just post the uh, the recent uh, Fed meeting where they came mm-hmm. out for sort of um, higher for longer, it sounds yep. like that would be this information would be supportive of that narrative. Yep. Um, you know, speaking of our last podcast, since then we've seen a uh, massive amount of volatility, particularly on the long end of the yield curve. Yeah, um, I'm curious. You know, what's your view on on that volatility? Where do you see that going? And and maybe explain that path and how we got there. For sure. I mean, that's uh, you know, on fixed income team, we spend needless to say a lot of time on on that exact question. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of things to play for within fixed income, but getting the duration call directionally right and hopefully somewhat from an amplitude perspective is uh, is obviously very very important to having a, uh, a successful investment uh, performance and program um, th- there's a lot there's a lot to talk about with that question let me rewind a little bit because I think the history here is very important as to what the drivers are and then maybe maybe uh, you'll have or maybe there'll be some questions that fall out of that but not to rewind the clock too too much but late late July we had the Bank of Japan pseudo tweak in its yield curve control program where it actually didn't change the official message and, and program, but it allowed what I would call market forces to be a lot more flexible above the 50 basis point cap. And we saw JG, 10-year JGB yields in particular, but the whole curve in, in Japan moved quite a bit higher. And that uh, had a significant impact on, it was one of many things that had a significant impact on starting getting the ball rolling on uh, on global yields higher. And to be fair, I think global yields have been trending higher since mid-July, but the Bank of Japan thing gave it a little bit of a, a little bit of a spark. And you had a whole bunch of other things happen within a relatively short period of time, which I wouldn't call a perfect storm, but I would call it uh, pretty, pretty significant directionally. Um, some of those things would have included and did include uh, very, very hot, and we're still in it now, but very, very hot data coming from the U.S., particularly on the output side, so the labor market side, I'm kind of referencing in particular, but you could kind of go down the whole list and it's al- almost everything has been uh, probably a little bit hotter than expected. You had the Fitch downgrade of the U.S. sovereign, uh, which was not totally unexpected, but I think the timing 
the timing in itself on the day, so to speak, was was unexpected. Uh, you had a quarterly refunding announcement from the Treasury, which sounds very academic, but it, I actually think it's probably the biggest driver. You had a quarterly refunding announcement from the Treasury, which essentially said that the Treasury is going to be in the government's going to be in a bigger deficit. Treasury's going to have to issue significantly more money than what the market was expecting, and uh, that the supply of that paper was going to be, um, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit more. Obviously, at the same time, you had uh, you know talk of uh, government shutdown uh, and those sorts of things, which obviously also wrapped into the Fitch downgrade because Fitch was basically looking at it not necessarily only from a balance sheet fiscal perspective, but also from a, a political um, impasse perspective and that uh, basically Republicans and Democrats were having a very difficult time getting anything done. And those continued political impasses were actually causing uh, a detriment to the rating. So you had that. You had some talk that going into Jackson Hole that R star, uh, which is basically the long-term uh, neutral rate, uh, at least the nominal uh, long-term neutral rate, would be would be raised. That we know now that that did not happen, but there was talk. Um, there was talk around that, and there was also talk of, uh, also on the supply side, but not the government side, but on the corporate side, that uh, come Labor Day, after Labor Day, there would be not only. Uh, significant corporate issuance, which is generally the case seasonally, that that's not a surprise, but that uh, there would be a significant amount of corporate issuance hitting uh, hitting the market uh, from a primary perspective, more than what would you would normally expect after the summer and, and you know over over labor, after Labor Day. Um, so all all of that include, and I guess I mean you could keep throwing things at the wall. Another one would obviously be um, Fed hawkish language. And, and the Fed uh, quantitative tightening program also kind of grinding in the background. You had all these factors, and I probably just rhymed off six or seven things, and some yeah. of them are more important than others, but all of these things happening within a relatively short period of time. And uh, the market basically said, yeah, we need to adjust the yield curve significantly higher, significantly hmm. higher. And the whole curve, to be fair, uh, but long end obviously was uh, was significantly significantly affected, and and the shape of the curve was also significantly affected. Whether steepener, obviously, so we would call it a bear steepener. So prices lower, bear, uh, and then steepener. So yields higher more in the back end than in the front end. So right. twos tens would be steepening, and then fives thirties, which is another way people like to look at uh, like to look at curves um, a steeper steeper as well. So kind of all that coming together. So you see. And there's and there's probably more, but those are kind of the six or seven major major drivers. Since we did this last podcast after the Fed meeting in September, obviously at the September meeting, and we talked about this at the last podcast, but kind of included in the conversation, we had a significant uh, hawkish event from the Fed in September, right? Which was a forecast round. Right. We had uh, 12 of 19 participants expecting at least one more 25 basis point hike for this year, uh, which basically meant one of two meetings, the November 1st meeting or the mid the mid December meeting. Uh, and that surprised uh, that surprised a lot of people. Um, a lot of people thought that that might get taken away, and that was there. And the other thing, obviously, coming out of that particular estimate was that the Fed, in the previous forecast round, had been penciling in 100 basis points worth of easing for 2024, and that number got cut in half to 50 basis points worth of easing for 2024. The market had already been moving that way, to be fair, but the solidification of that narrative, so to speak, I think was hawkish enough, and it, it went beyond where the market was pricing at the time anyway. So uh, that kind of extended the 
the the you know the fall off, you know the the, the sell off in bonds, so prices lower, yields higher, and causing a fair bit of um, causing a fair bit of volatility in the process. Last week was very interesting. Last week, just you know, in case we have a bit of shelf life on this podcast, so last week was the was the NFP week, um, and we saw some really interesting price action in U.S. Treasuries last week, before and after the payrolls report on Friday. On Wednesday, Thursday, we saw um, we saw yields get to interesting levels, right around five, which is at the end of the day just a number, but it's obviously a significant number, and a lot of people are watching it five percent. And uh, we saw a lot from a yield perspective. I'll talk yield perspective as opposed to price perspective here. We saw yields move higher uh, to five and above, and then we saw yields snap right back lower overnight. I think it was Wednesday night into Thursday, uh, New York time or Toronto time, Eastern time. And then on Friday, after what was generally seen, although not by everybody, but generally seen as a relatively strong payrolls number on Friday morning, which you would expect yields higher. Yields did, in fact, again, uh, start gapping higher, but then met a fair bit of resistance. Uh, So buyers would have come in on the price side, right? So buyers would have come in and yields lower. Uh, once it again got above five and it could not sustain yields could not sustain above five percent and myself and I think a number of people on the team fixed income team looked at that and said wow this is really this is really interesting and obviously it's before a, a pseudo long weekend in the US and here the bond market was closed on on Monday uh, August uh, sorry Monday October 9th for for both in in US and Canada so it was kind of a half-ish day from a market perspective a lower liquidity day so we didn't want to put too much weight on the price action on Friday. But the more we looked at it, um, the more we thought it was quite odd for yields to not extend higher uh, after Friday. So that was odd. And then obviously, you know, with the events over the weekend out of the Middle East, uh, there was a, a pretty strong flight to uh, flight to safety bid. Uh, so prices higher, yields lower on, on the back of that news um, again with the bond market, cash market anyway, being closed on Monday, the uh, October 9th. Uh, but the futures market was open, so you could you could tell that yields were going to open quite a bit lower uh, when they reopened late late Monday night, early Tuesday morning our time uh, from a cash perspective because the futures were already signaling that. Um, and then we've had uh, some significant Fed speak. Since uh, this, I would say this week that we're in currently, particularly Vice Chair Jefferson, uh, and I would say Governor Waller, um, uh, Monday and Thursday, respectively, that have essentially said that a lot of the uh, work that the Fed may have had to do with additional rate hikes, and we just talked about that, right, the 12 of 19 and one more this year, has already been done because yields have moved so much higher so quickly and financial conditions have tightened. Hmm. And for Jefferson to say it, and he's been pretty quiet of late. He's vice chair of the committee, so arguably like the number two person on the committee, I would say the number two person on the committee. For him to say that is significant. And for Waller, who's been a, a, a staunch hawk and leading the charge over the last two, two and a half years with Bullard, who's now since um, resigned his post and gone to uh, Purdue to run the business school. Uh, but Waller has been very, very hawkish. So for him to basically say, you know, I think we're good where we are right. is significant. So that's kind of pushing yields the other way, lower, um, and uh, causing a fair bit of volatility in the curve. So there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to watch. There's a lot of dynamics. Um, 
There's some other fiscal and spending dynamics that I think are important, supply dynamics that are important going forward. But that's kind of what's happened and where we are here, I think, kind of as we as we go to uh, as we go to print on this podcast, so to speak. So a lot to uh, absorb, Dustin. So um, maybe just sort of going through what you've said, there's uh, there's significant pressure up on yields uh, due to sort of the fiscal uh, story out of the U.S., some of the actions of BOJ, Finch downgrade, all of these sort of things. And then on yep. the other side, um, you have the geopolitical event um, in the Middle East uh, pushing it down. Yep. Uh, you have the Fed speak saying um, maybe that's additional rate hike in the curve no longer needed because the market's done uh, that for us given the, the rise in, in rates. How, mm-hmm. do you, how do you tie in the recent inflation data? So you, you said – you, you've shifted from uh, sticky to structural uh, inflation. Presumably, the way you'd combat structural inflation is by having the Fed more credible that they're going to be higher for longer and do what yep. it's needed. Right. How, how does that filter into your thinking on this? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a big part of the discussion. I mean, there's a few ways to look at it. One is higher for longer, and so you're holding. I would you know under that scenario, and then. Just higher higher rates, right? And just higher policy right. rate, higher Fed funds rate, or any or yep. any central bank for that matter, any, any central bank policy rate. And I mean, given the commentary of what has come out this week, and there have been many others, including Lori Logan, who's Dallas uh, Fed uh, president and a voter this year, and former head of the Open Markets Desk in New York. She's of the same opinion of you know, that I just mentioned. Uh, the you know the curve's doing a lot of the work for it. Mary Daly from San Francisco, who's not a voter this year, but you know similar language. Kashkari, who is a voter this year out of Minneapolis, uh, essentially saying, you know, it's it's a lot of it's there. Uh, hmm. We don't necessarily need to do more. So that seems to suggest that the and you know this the Fed has the luxury of being able to flip anytime it wants. Of course, but yeah. the, the the language here over the last week or so seems to suggest higher for longer, as opposed to we need to do more on policy rates. Okay. That may change. Um, but I think there's a genuine uh, willing or want, maybe not even willingness, but want to try and keep rates at the current level. Obviously, Fed funds is a target range. So five and a quarter to five and a half, which is where it is. Uh, and it, that narrative from even from the end of September and the dots, quote unquote, seems to be uh, evolving, evolving a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. So, I'm not at the point where I think that we need to start penciling in a higher Fed funds rate. I think this idea going into the September FOMC and the market, I think, was right to start chipping away at the amount of cuts that it was pricing into the market. Uh, sorry, it was pricing into the curve for 2024 is correct. I mean, at the beginning of September, I think literally it's easy to remember for because it's it was September 1st, I think. September 1st, the market was pricing 120 basis points of easing for 2024. Wow. And by the, by the end of the meeting, uh, which I think was September 20th, but I might have my date slightly wrong, but call it three weeks, give or, cha- give or take. The market had basically halved from 120 to 60, which again was kind of in line with where the Fed ended up going, right? From June to September, 100 right. versus 50. So kind of, you know, your same direction and kind of same magnitude. So it made it made sense to me. And, um, and I think that's the right call for now. What would change that for me is, well, first of all, 
the employment the employment data continues to remain very very strong and accelerates again which i think is unlikely but but it's not impossible and if the fiscal story continues to be very significant um then that that could also be a driver but the inflation's hmm. the inflation side i think i think most people are comfortable with where it sits even though it's higher and and it's leveled up so to speak i think you would need to see a reacceleration in the, in the monthly inflation data particularly super core or core x uh core services x shelter there's a few different ways to kind of different people have different super core definitions so i want to be careful but core x uh, services uh and shelter seems to be the fed preference and if that starts reaccelerating on a 3 month annualized basis then i think we'll have to have a discussion around fed funds moving uh, you know north of 5 and a quarter 5 and a half Great context. Before we get into uh, what you've been doing in the portfolio and what the team's been, been looking at as far as trades go, and sounds like lots to talk about there probably, but yeah. I love your take on Canada. We spent all this time talking about the U.S. What's the, what's the current state of, uh, of Canada, the yields, fiscal, and what's your view on it? So Canadian story is always very interesting. Um, I think the world has been dominated by the U.S. curve for the last little while, and it's been moving the Canadian curve, not entirely, but a lot uh, around at the same time. I think um, clearly Canada is a, a very high beta economy. Uh, everyone knows that. Significant uh, sensitivity to rates given the housing structure here, the mortgage market structure, variable rates. And obviously Canadian households have are quite levered up. Uh, and and that's, that's juxtaposed quite a bit with the U.S. side. Um, because the U.S. household basically delevered after 07, 08, 09. So there's a bit, a bit of a difference in kind of the, quote, household balance sheet here versus the U.S. And that makes, I think, things uh, a little bit more challenging uh, here. When I look at uh, what's priced in for the U.S., and we just spent a little bit of time talking about that for 2024. When I look at what's priced in for the U.S. by the market for next year, and I look at what is priced in for the Bank of Canada by the market for next year, something seems a little off or maybe a little more extreme way to say it, it looks it looks wrong. Um, the market, as of last week, was actually pricing end of year 24 Bank of Canada rate uh, above, slightly, slightly above, a few basis points above the current policy rate. Hmm. Which I at the time, and it wasn't a, a thing overnight. It, w- it had been it had been growing for a while, but I found it very, I found it odd and probably and probably wrong, given what I, I think is going to happen next year to the Canadian economy. I think there'll be a massive reset risk in the second half of twenty four for fisc- fixed rate mortgages, and I think the bank will have to be very very cognizant of that and sensitive uh, to that either during or or before. That December 2024 estimate now by the market has come off a fair bit, maybe 15 or 20 basis points into the 480s. Okay. But I still think it looks quite a bit high. I mean, it's not even one 25 basis point cut lower than where the current Bank of Canada policy rate is. And that to me looks odd. And if and we'll see how the world develops. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Um, if that appears to be too hawkish, i.e. rates need to be quite a bit lower at that point uh, or by that point, uh, Canadian Canadian duration looks very interesting here. Not, and I'm not saying that only because I'm you know Canadian and I work for you know Canadian asset manager and I sit in Toronto. If I was sitting back in New York uh, or if I was a global asset manager sitting in London or Tokyo, I would be 
I would be saying the same thing because I think that there are potentially some opportunities here for Canadian duration, particularly against maybe other global, other global curves. So I think that hmm. the, I mean, obviously the the labor market here is hung in pretty well, and and that's 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 you know, interesting in a way. Uh, and the, and similar to the U.S. inflation story, it's pretty sticky slash structural here, as well. But we've had, unlike the U.S probably because the Canadian household is a lot more levered up than the U.S. We've already had a negative GDP print, right? We had a negative GDP print for Q2, small, but uh, it was negative in Q2. Uh, we got that number late, uh, I think, uh, in, in September. And frankly, the Q3 number is looking it's looking very, very weak. It may also print negative, and there's a good chance it'll print small positive. But if it prints negative and there are no revisions, I guess technically Canada would have been in a in a recession you know, as of the end of Q3, as the end of September, with the relatively textbook definition of you know, two consecutive you know, quarters right. of negative real GDP growth. And so I would say that it's already, it's already starting. Right. And I don't think the bank can... Despite what inflation is doing, and Macklem, Governor Macklem's uh, comments that you know, we want to get to two percent, and I'm sure the bank does, but if the economy is already starting to show signs of weakness, the bank's going to have to be relatively cognizant and sensitive to that, I think. And that's where I think this, you know, the what I would call the OIS strip, or kind of when you look at the monthly. Or, or or the or the Bank of Canada calendar dates and the you know the the overnight interest rate swap uh, you know print for those for those meeting dates and that that you know four four eighty nine number whatever it is trading now for for December twenty four looks uh, kind of off to me or wrong and so generally speaking for those that don't follow fixed income maybe uh, quite quite as closely if a central bank is cutting rates not always but generally you you would want to be buying buying those bonds and and locking in those yields cuz you'd be getting the yields at a higher level and you'd be getting price appreciation as well so often not always but once you see the last hike in a cycle that's when it gets really interesting to kind of enter into long fixed income positions so we spend a lot of time and that's why I spend a lot of time on central banks because understanding the cycle and where they're at and where the risks are and are they at the end, are they not, and how could the market trade differently and what's in the price and what looks interesting, you know, one curve versus another. Spend obviously a lot of time on that as I, as I should. Um, but I think the Canadian story, regardless of where you sit in the world, is, is really interesting from a fixed income perspective. And I would not be surprised if in six or eight months from now, uh, we're having a conversation around global interest in, in buying Canadian, uh, buying Canadian duration. So, that's definitely a thematic uh, for us in the portfolio, and something that uh, I want. I you know I like to spend a lot of time at. Now, where where that could be wrong, and I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the answer, is that the U.S. curve matters. And right, you know, are we at an inflection point here? Given what I was saying before, the price action last week, people coming in with demand around five percent, uh, the safe haven flows given given the news over the weekend, and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, are we seeing an inflection point in in global in U.S. yields and, and global yields? And we might be, but the supply story that I've been so focused on the last couple of months since early August, which I think has been a driver for markets and to the surprise of many, uh, I, I'm not totally ready to give up on that. And the U.S. supply story matters because if if for whatever reason to get a federal 
government budget bill passed by November 17th, there needs to be a huge spending package and there's not spending cuts to offset that. And the treasury is going to have to issue even more debt. Uh, and who's going to mop up this paper um, and the supply dynamic and thematic uh, and driver for markets kind of rebounds here and pushes yields higher, U.S. yields higher, then while I think Canadian could still uh, outperform uh, versus the U.S., directionally, it's going to get caught up in the U.S., in my opinion, it's going to get caught up in the U.S., Canadian curve is going to get caught up in the U.S. vacuum higher. So that's where this gets really, really tricky. And so I'm spending a lot of time trying to understand what the U.S., ironic, somewhat ironically, what the U.S. fiscal uh, outlook is going to be for the next four, five, six weeks going into November right. 17th, um, because that can have an impact on all global curves, and particularly, I think, the Canadian curve, which looks very, very attractive right now, because from a domestic perspective, things are starting to fray, and the market seems to be overpricing uh, the Bank of Canada's ability to keep rates higher for longer. Great. Well, let's transition into how you're actually implementing this in portfolios. What what are you actually? What trades are you actually making uh, throughout the, the lineup? So we have cut a fair bit. We've been, in some ways, short duration, in some ways, long durations. We've been pretty long duration, particularly in real yields, which you and I have talked about a lot over this. But kind of juxtaposing that, we've been kind of short uh, nominal yields via via some futures. So of late some of the news last week, the price action last week, and then some of the flight to safety stuff uh, from over the weekend, we've cut some of those um, kind of short duration uh, for the long end uh, positions uh, on on the US side. So we're kind of net net a little bit closer to neutral on long end duration. Uh, And some of that's real, real, real rates. And some of that's nominal, I would say just generally across the portfolio, whether that's kind of core, core plus, unconstrained a little bit. Um, so that's been, that's been one. And it's kind of, you know, the genesis of a lot of that is that what I've talked about the last few minutes in terms of, um, kind of the interesting price action last week and, and, and events over the weekend, et cetera. So I mean, we've been, uh, looking at, at short positions for short durations positions for a while since early August, because of that laundry list of things that I started off the podcast with or right after the CPI comment. And, um, so now we're kind of squaring that up a bit. So that's a big one uh, for us. That's that's you know there are many many important things, but that's probably the most you know the most uh, the most important thing. The Japan trade continues to grind in the background, and uh, we shaved uh, a little bit in some of our portfolios. That's just not that we don't like the trade. We definitely do like the trade still, like being short yields higher. Uh, but Japan yields have fallen in line with global curves and. Um, are trading in line with global duration. So it, you can't have everything. For a long time, it was everything. And then there's the Japan position. I wouldn't even say now. For a number of months, it's been you know, the Japan duration position needs to be kind of wrapped into the overall duration outlook. So we cut a little bit of that short on the Japan side. Again, not because we don't like the position, but a little bit more kind of what I call portfolio management, risk management, um, and uh, and kind of just right right sizing that a little bit. Uh, the EM trade, which I know I spend a, a decent amount of time on on these podcasts, is still I think really interesting and important. You know, EM EM rates are not going to do particularly well if U.S. rates are backing up and you get the double whammy of a stronger U.S. dollar. So that. That did not have a, an amazing uh, few weeks there. So we've done a little bit of pruning around around the EM position to try and right size it for where 
uh, you know, for where we're comfortable. The Italy spread story, I think, is very interesting in Europe, uh, but I think it's relatively capped. In a previous era, you could have seen Italian spreads versus kind of the German benchmark really um, widen out significantly, three more like 300 basis points. Hmm. But I think because of the new program, a relative new program that the uh, European Central Bank has in there, that it's it's somewhat it's somewhat capped at maybe 250 basis points or, or around that. So, um, you know, at, at 200 or 190 basis points now currently, I mean, there's a little bit of juice there, but the, the risk reward for those trades are not probably as exciting, you know, as they once were. Uh, so those are probably some of the, the major ones that, uh, you know, that we're, uh, that we're in and that we've been, and that we've been kind of pruning. Um, but there, there's definitely, there are definitely a lot of things to watch and a lot of things, uh, a lot of things to play for. And I think, you know, given obviously the news out of the Middle East over the last uh, week or so, and what I think is going to be happening or potentially happening from a news perspective from the fiscal side in the U.S. if they do a big aid package to right. uh, you know Israel and the Ukraine package, which did not get through the first time, gets stuffed in right. there. It could be a really big spend number. If there's nothing, if there's not a lot to offset that. Uh, and that that could very well be the case because going into a federal election year, you don't necessarily want to be cutting discretionary spending from the federal sure. government. That could be a thematic that I'm not I'm not convinced everybody is really not only paying attention to, but ascribing enough weight to as a potential market driver. So I think it's I think it's really I think very challenging, uh, very interesting. Uh, and, 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 and very, uh, and very tough times, I think within, you know, for, for everybody, you know, kind of watching the news and, uh, you know, from markets perspective, it's, it's very much an active, it's very much an active management environment, uh, for us with very, very significant conversations around, uh, you know, big swings in the market, you know, to your question, big volatility in the market. And I think the, the fourth quarter of the year is going to be uh, quite challenging, not necessarily to make money, but just quite challenging to be ahead of the macro themes and stay ahead and stay ahead of trades. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's um, always fascinating, always dynamic. But, yeah, those are some of the things that I think we're watching and or and or uh, bigger trades that we're managing at the in the portfolio at the moment. Dustin, thanks so much for spending the time to walk through that. Lots going on in markets as per usual, and the team very active. So appreciate you taking the time. For sure. Thanks very much for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 